0: starts now. In today's episode, I interview Dr. Amatma and we talk about the five things that you wouldn't find on Dr. Google to optimize your fertility. But quite honestly, a lot of these tips are quite applicable to anyone who's trying to optimize their health. If you do like this episode, please do rate it and write a review because that's how we ensure this gets at the top of people's playlists. And check out my show notes for links to helpful things like my Instagram account, which I post a lot of the information I'm unable to cover on the podcast, as well as a link to my store where I post a lot of the products that are discussed on the podcast, and a link to my newsletter, which I send out once a month so you can get access to the latest in women's health. And without further ado, let's hear from Dr. Amatma.
1: Fertility is not just a female issue, it is equally the partner. And we want to test and know everything about both people, especially if you're partnered. If you're a solo mom by choice, cool, no problem. But if you have a partner, your partner needs to participate in this journey and be at least empowered with knowing what's happening. Even if his sperm are great, he's still showing up to the appointments. He's still doing his part in supporting both of you creating this family together. There have been many clients over the years that are like, well, can you just work with me? I, my, my husband's great. His sperm are great. He doesn't want to do any of this natural stuff. And I'm like, yeah, no, that just tells me you guys together are not on the same page and I'm not being a part of that a conversation. And they're really surprised because they're like, well, it's just, you know, like, just work with me. And I'm like, nope, sorry, not doing it.
0: (laughs) No, but you're, you're right. And, you know, it's, it's funny. Sometimes even I forget, even though I know what the, the processes and the rules that are in place, but you know, my story is. I happened to see my OBGYN right after my honeymoon and she just asked me some questions. I had no clue about fertility. I literally didn't even think about being infertile because my, I was even though I was 35, my grandmother had 15 kids. Like oh wow. My family yeah. has no fertility issues. Like whatever. <laughs> and so Did some tests and right away said, go to a fertility doctor. And so we were with an REI. So they did the testing on me, the testing on my husband. So we all had what was needed because of the accidental conversation. Um, And what was interesting is she did the test, even though I had not been trying for six months or more. So I think one thing also to clarify for everyone is the definition, according to American Society for Reproductive Medicine, of infertility is if you're 35 or over, try for six months um, or more then you should, go get tested and if it's a year or more, go get tested. But as you're indicating, it's important to just be proactive. And men too, like what's been great and you alluded to this is there's a lot of startups who are creating at home tests. Like now there's at home collection kits for sperm like daddy and, and others um, where they can do it at home and send it off to get tested and even frozen. And so there are a lot of opportunities and I agree with being proactive. I think, you know, individuals probably, you know, I'd I'd be curious on your thoughts, but I think the individual has to really decide what they're up for because it does also create anxiety and pressure if you know the results and they aren't that great. Yeah. Sometimes I wonder if, if I had not known, would my outcomes have been different? Is it that I knew right away When I started trying that, that impacted the outcome. So I think there's just a lot to weigh, but yeah, I agree. Proactiveness and information is so important in making those decisions.
1: It saves the frustration of trying and you're like, why isn't it working? Why isn't it working? And so many of the women that I see come in, like really having lost that faith or trust in their bodies. It's not like, what am I doing wrong? Or how can I do something different? It's what's wrong with me. And that's the part that I'm always like, oh, nothing is wrong with you. You're amazing. You're perfect just the way you are. Your hormones are out of whack. And let's work to address that. Okay, so let's
0: (laughs) dive into the five tips. Let's take them one by one.
1: Why don't we start with mindset? Because I think we've been talking about that a little bit already. That's a great one. Does our fertility really drop off of a cliff at 35? So what I discovered in a lot of the research was, no, our fertility doesn't drop off of this cliff. And a lot of what our data or what we tell women has been based on research from the 1800s in France. There was a 3% lower chance of the women between 35 and 39 getting pregnant, as there was for 25 to 29 getting pregnant. So I think that this, at least for me, when I read that research, I was like, well, I'm willing to take that 3% chance (laughs) and is empowering because we can now have the mindset of, wait, if age is not the only factor, then what else, what else could I be doing? What else can I pay attention to?
0: Let's dive into that because this is a really important one. And I do like to play devil's advocate. This is the standard. And I mean, even the way fertility is defined, it's, you know, how long you're trying for under 35 and over 35. I mean, it is spoken about everywhere also there's nuances and there's so much that we don't understand in women's health and trying to ensure that apples to apples is is being compared i think can be complicated because there's a lot of conditions we don't understand because of the limited research and so let's play devil's advocate on these studies. So if you're finding these studies where in the 1800s we say one thing, and now countries are starting to do these other tests, you know, if I were, you know, the president of ASRM, like what would I be saying? You know, the studies are correct. How can we get those things to change? So I, I just want to, I guess, challenge it of like how do we really look at this? Because as someone is listening to this, like I certainly don't want people to come across and like start going to their doctors and and saying this, and then it causing concern and so I just want to like figure out like how do we I think generally speaking we can all agree much needs to be done in women's health (laughs) right Um, but how do we rectify a very large organization that does this and really talks about that age cliff
1: On some level, there isn't a lot that we are going to do to change it, right? Like there's going to have to be massive numbers of studies to actually create enough of a tipping point to say, okay, now we actually are going to say something different. But this, like the 35 cliff is ingrained into science so deep that those roots are really, really deep. And I'm not sure that we're going to pull them out with okay. you know me little right. me saying that. So would it look, be safe? The <laughs> so would it,
0: would it be safe to say we all concur that currently the way the world is viewed is that 35 is the cliff. Mm-hmm. There could be evidence pointing to other things that can factor into it. It's not a pure black and white age thing and there's other considerations and maybe leave it at that. By the way, another thing before, um, I forget when you were talking about the testing. So unfortunately, the way a lot of the insurance policies are is they will not reimburse for the testing if you haven't been trying. I have not researched the policies to find out, because um, they're actually hard to find to that level of detail, as you likely know. of Do they also separate out over 35 and under 35, or do they do a blanket you have to have been trying for a year? So that's another mm-hmm. nuance. Do you know for sure? Do they it not is, cover it?
1: It is, um, if you're over 35, you only have to be trying for six months. If in order to get it covered by insurance, so so the
0: insurance does has caught up to the ASRM guidelines. Yes. Okay. Yes. Perfect. Basically. Yeah. Okay. Um. But no, I just wanted to point that out because if someone is trying to truly be proactive, unless there's something that the doctor can finagle, um, they really probably have to do those at home kits or pay out of pocket at the doctor's office are pretty much the options. Yes. Yes.
1: Um, okay. Exactly. So I
0: just wanted to at least paint that picture.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's perfect because we can talk about that being the next thing. Is okay. Testing, right? Testing is super critical. In my opinion, I think the sooner the better. At least the women that I've talked to, it it is often that they are afraid or scared that, oh my God, I've been trying for two months. I'm not getting pregnant. Is there something wrong with me? They're already thinking that, right? So if we can get tests and say, actually, check it out. Your hormones look great. Just go and try for a few more months they relax they almost always come back and they're like hey we're pregnant right i did nothing right like no interventions i didn't tell them to change their diet or eat different or anything like that they just relax because they now we have some data points that we can say actually your hormones are fine go try it gives them the little bit of freedom or relaxation that they need in their bodies to actually be able to conceive. And that's not true for everyone, but that's true for a lot of women that we've talked to and we'll tell them, you know, like our our guidelines are a little bit more rigid in terms of what's optimal for fertility. But when we look at their hormone results and we can say like actually, these look great from what you've told me as far as your periods, what's happening with your cycles, you're super regular, you're not having PMS. Like we have a few different bullet points or checkpoints that we're going through. And if all of those check out their hormones look great. I'm often going to be like, you don't need me go give it a few more months. And they'll be like, what? I'm willing to pay you whatever amount of money. And I'm like, you don't need me just go try. And they'll, they'll often like send a message and say, thank you so much for believing in me, we're pregnant. So testing is great when it is one, you're able to review it with someone who can say, this is great or not great, optimal or not.
0: With respect to the testing, so generally speaking, would you recommend the basic hormone panel the LH FSH AMH and estradiol, estradiol thank you yeah. Yeah. and progesterone now progesterone i must ask i am i'm am now calling it the little hormone that could or the underestimated <laughs> hormone is probably the better way to put it because it is all about progesterone right now in some of the experts that i've been in t- been talking to and i know traditionally it's a day 21 test but yeah. they're finding that there's a lot of fluctuation in the progesterone levels which could impact early miscarriage. What are you telling patients to do around that piece? Is it more get the basics uh, that we had discussed minus the progesterone and have the man tested as well and then from there try and then if needed look at progesterone or do you find it's helpful to even start monitoring that right away?
1: I think there are some clear signs of when progesterone testing is needed. A lot of women are already doing LH testing at home with the urine sticks, right? If you've been trying to get pregnant, you're already doing LH strips. You know that you're ovulating at a certain point in your cycle. And then if you don't have a full luteal phase, minimum 10 days is kind of minimum. If your luteal phase is any shorter than 10 days, then we know that more likely than not, there's an issue with progesterone. So that's definite testing. If you have PMS, you have um, short cycles, heavy bleeding, spotting, there's some like clear indicators of when I would test progesterone. If you don't have any of those things, if your cycles are like 26 to 35, 32 days on average, it's pretty consistent your cycles are relatively predictable, the basic testing is enough, Uh, at least in the beginning. Maybe we want more testing later, but at least to start, I think the LH, FSH, estradiol, and AMH on cycle day three, two or three, are enough to give us a sense of what's happening. Progesterone is almost always a second tier test for me because let's say your FSH is high. FSH being high is almost always a clear matchup to poor egg quality. And if you have poor egg quality, you almost always are gonna have poor progesterone production. Because the quality of the progesterone production is based on the corpus luteum or the shell of the egg after the egg has been ovulated. That shell is what's making the progesterone. So you start out with one, it splits off, the egg gets ovulated, and then this corpus luteum, the shell that's left, is going to produce progesterone for two weeks. So if you have those four hormones and they look great or in an optimal state, more likely than not, that progesterone is going to be great.
0: The next kind of are related is, okay, you've had your testing, now you want to optimize your health. And there's a lot of different things to optimize. So one of them is sleep. And boy, will I tell you how much over the past, I mean, let me just step back and say this. I really wish that we can get to a world and I hope through this podcast and all the people that I'm meeting who are working on transforming women's health can get women there, which is to not wait until we have a crisis or a major problem, but instead be proactive about learning but my fertility journey, like many's fertility journeys are what kind of force you to be holy cow educated on like everything about your body. Mm -hmm. And I have learned, and you're going to talk about these too, is diet and sleep, like sleep, not only get sleep, but what time you go to bed, when you wake up, how long you're sleeping for, how was the quality of sleep? Like it is, it's been really fascinating. So, and, and by the way, when we dive into these, I don't want anyone to feel overwhelmed as someone who's who's experienced what I assume you're going to be talking about, it's kind of a fun experimentation. You're like, you try something. And so it's not like after you hear this podcast, all of Dr. Matma's recommendations now starting tomorrow, you have to implement them is what I'm assuming you're going to say, I hope. Um, but for me, I would say it's been like a 10 year experimentation to find what works and it's yeah. made it less overwhelming. So anyways, yeah. let's talk about yeah. sleep.
1: It's, I mean, it's hard to implement everything overnight. So just my goal is always for small shifts slowly unless you're trying to get pregnant and it needs to happen now, (laughs) right? If you're in that place, you need support. If people could just sleep and get good quality sleep, that is going to have the biggest impact on fertility and it's free. So it's one of my first things because I feel like Everyone can do it, unless you have insomnia, (laughs) and then we have an issue. But if we can get a good amount of sleep every single night, and good is, is based in Ayurveda, which I'm trained in, Ayurveda says that the amount of sleep is really based on your body type. So somewhere between six and nine hours is optimal, and you really have to find what that place is for you. When you wake up in the morning, you should feel awake, alive, alert, and kind of like ready and excited for your day, you know? And if you have to hit the snooze button 10 times, that is a clear indicator that you did not, either you didn't get enough hours or you didn't get enough good quality sleep. The other connection is there's a thing called a cortisol awakening response in that that first 30 minutes of waking your cortisol is going to rise and kind of reach optimal for the morning time that gets you through your day. The biggest impact to cortisol awakening response is what you were doing the night before before you went to bed. So if you were in front of a screen that gives off blue light, which is our TVs, phones, computers, all the things that we use these days, um, the blue light from our computers or our screens are essentially like hitting the part of our, our optic chiasm that turns off melatonin production. So this blue light creates this, impact on our melatonin production which then means we don't sleep well through the night and then when we wake up in the morning there's no um, switch that to turn it to cortisol so now we have this melatonin deficiency creating a cortisol deficiency in the most basic way so the way to fix it (laughs) is blue light glasses if you're gonna watch tv or whatever get blue light filter glasses good ones they not work. the cheap ones on Amazon. <laughs> yeah. You know
0: what? I, I will admit I had bought, purchased the cheap ones and then I found more costly ones and they, it's a difference. It, it it's really, such a difference. It really works. It is not a marketing thing. It really yeah. works
1: limiting blue light at night and then getting good full spectrum light in the morning. And that's the way to fix this like cortisol melatonin thing that happens. Melatonin is one of my favorite hormones for women because it impacts fertility. It helps increase egg quality. So if you're getting good quality sleep and you have natural production of melatonin, you're naturally supporting the quality of your eggs. When your melatonin production goes down or you're not getting as well of a response with that, the egg quality is going to go down. So again, one of the easiest things to do is get good quality sleep and make sure that you're sleeping through the night. If you're not, you can take melatonin because again, melatonin is a hormone, but it is going to support egg quality. So it's a nice way to get support for your eggs, egg health, and um, simultaneously support good sleep, and you're going to feel more rested when you wake up.
0: With respect to the melatonin, my understanding is the dose and the time at which you take it is really, really important. What kind of guidance would you provide around that?
1: In general, I start slow. The lowest dose, one milligram. Start with that try that for a week, see if it's helping your sleep. The biggest thing with melatonin is if you take it too late at night, you're going to wake up feeling groggy. So you want to take it early enough that you don't feel groggy, but late enough that it helps you fall asleep and stay asleep. And you feel more refreshed when you wake up. And if all of those things are happening, great. The word of caution is don't give melatonin to your partners. Melatonin, as great as it is is for egg quality, it's not so great for sperm health. So men need different things. But for the women, I would say, like usually two hours before bed, one to two hours before bed.
0: I know vitamin D is also important um, and we don't get enough of it. And I've recently Mm -hmm. learned that if you're wearing sunscreen, it blocks the vitamin D Mm -hmm. from the sun, which I was like, what? That's a supplement that I've been hearing so much about and the benefits of it. Any thoughts on vitamin D and who should be taking it, who shouldn't, when, how often?
1: So many of us are deficient in vitamin D. It's it's incredible. Like We test everyone and there are very few times that people have optimal levels of vitamin D on testing. Generally speaking, I... I think that a a safe dose for almost everyone across the board could be like 1,000 IUs. And then we would go up based on how low you are. So the more deficient you are, the higher your dose is going to be. But that's usually for short periods of time. And then we fall back to like a maintenance dose, I call it, which is 1,000 to 2,000 IUs per day.
0: Consumer sector of women's health. Visit www.femtechconsumerinnovation.com to view the superstar speaker lineup and enter code fempower15 for 15% off your ticket. Hope to see you there. Let's roll next into supplements and Dr. Google. Oh my goodness. I, am not, I'm not going to even lie. I was the person anytime I heard something, I added it to the list. And I mean, I did do assessments, but I probably wasn't as methodical as if you were to assess what I was doing, you're probably like, Hmm, I don't know about that, but I will say I would then when I found someone I trusted who I knew knew supplements, I would say, here's a picture of my medicine cabinet. This is what I'm doing please help because I don't think this is correct. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so talk to us about supplements and, you know, cause the other thing too, and I appreciate that we're doing this around like the Dr. Google search. Cause the other thing I have found in the searches is that if you don't Google the right combination of words, you don't find the right information and it's months and years into the process that you actually know what you're supposed to be looking for. So you kind of have to start from knowing something to find the right thing for you anyways. It's a very odd, frustrating thing. So, so talk to us about how we, who are desperate to get that baby and we've been drilled 35 is the cliff and we would like to build that family. How do supplements play a role?
1: At least from what I've seen patients come in with like garbage bags, Full of supplements. Here are all my supplements, doc. Do something with it. And a majority of the time, like, I'm going to remove three-fourths of them. And my response is, let's read the ingredients. And I'm not even looking at the active ingredients. That's what's going to be on the supplement label that tells you how many milligrams. I'm looking at the other ingredients. The other ingredients is very telling about what is the quality of that product. And the longer that list of other ingredients, the more likely that product is garbage. The second thing about supplements is, is it the right kind of supplements. So for example, magnesium, we can talk about all the benefits of magnesium. Magnesium is amazing. It helps your cycles. It's going to help with period cramps. It's going to help you have better hormones, better, better quality sleep. Like you name it. I can give you a million reasons why magnesium is amazing, but which kind of magnesium? There are at least eight that I can name off the top of my head of the different types of magnesium. You have magnesium carbonate, citrate, malate, gluconate, glycinate. So magnesium usually doesn't float around on its own. It, that is an element. It has to be bound to something to make it into a form that you're that you can ingest, whether it's a powder, a liquid, or a capsule that binding process is what stabilizes it in some ways to something that you can put into your body. And then when you put it into your body, your gut has to cleave, cleave off whatever that other ingredient is, citrate, malate, gluconate, whatever. So it cleaves it off and then your body absorbs that magnesium. So when you're talking about putting the wrong ingredient. So magnesium carbonate, I will pick on that one because it's easy. Carbonate is essentially chalk. (laughs) Calcium carbonate is chalk. So you take that carbonate component, bind it to the magnesium, and you get this really crappy form of magnesium that probably will not benefit you at all. I wish that there were easier ways to educate on each and every nutrient, we can break this down to calcium, vitamin B, like what form of vitamin B do you want? What form of vitamin D do you want? So it can really get complex in the sense of if this is not the language that you speak every day, it's a different language to learn. And then the last tier is, is it actually helping your fertility? And that's a question that I ask often because in Google or Facebook, what I've seen is that it's someone gets pregnant and they're like, oh, what did you do? Oh, I was taking DHEA and maca. I know, and I now know. everybody in that group wants to take DHEA and exactly. maca. Exactly.
0: I I, I I see it. I see it.
1: And it's, it's unfortunate because it just means that Now you are exposing yourself. DHEA, for example, is a really popular fertility supplement. It took me seven years to really figure out the optimal person to give DHEA to. And now it works like magic. But there's only like out of the hundreds of people that we treat, there's like maybe 5% of people that need DHEA. That person is someone who has a really specific pattern of hormones that everyone just doesn't have you. And you need to test DHEA levels in urine before knowing whether or not to supplement someone's DHEA. DHEA is a hormone. That is not something you want to mess around with willy-nilly and just give to everyone. Too much DHEA can shorten your periods, shorten your cycles, meaning you go from like 28-day cycles down to 21 day cycles if you don't need DHEA. You can really detriment be detrimental to egg quality. So it can that is one supplement that I think can do more harm than good. And again, it's only a very narrow percent of people that actually need it. It's unfortunate because they don't tell you this. You can read PubMed studies. They don't tell you this, right? They don't tell you like, oh, you need DHEA if X Y Z. They just pick a random population of people and they say, oh, we gave them 200 milligrams of DHEA, and this is what we figured out. You would never take 200 milligrams, by right. the way.
0: No, um, thank you. I mean, that's these are really you know, important tips. And I, I mean, I almost feel like we need to do a whole like just supplement episode when it comes to fertility because we can, I mean, I have so many questions um, but I do wanna get to the last tip, which is around diet. What are the nuances there that you wouldn't find on Google? So I assume like eat organic, eat healthy, like those to me would be the obvious statements but what are some things they wouldn't find on Google that you want people to know when it comes to diet?
1: I think the biggest trend that I've seen or trends that I've seen as far as diet are limiting your diet in terms of major food groups. And my suggestion is do not limit your food groups. That means eat your proteins, eat your complex carbs, eat your fruits and vegetables, like get the variety and spectrum of good, healthy, unprocessed food. Limiting to either keto diet, paleo diet, you name it. There's like, there's no perfect diet that is good for fertility. I think the most balanced diet is good for fertility. So like Mediterranean diet is probably the most researched, but again, Mediterranean diet is great for most people. It's not good for everybody. So kind of get all of the foods. The way that you can help support your fertility is to eat less and less processed food. Vegetables are important. Green leafy vegetables, super important, Um, especially for fertility and pregnancy. So those are going to get highlighted. And then really honing in on when you're whenever you can, or as much as you can trying to rotate your food. So what ends up happening is that our brain overpowers our gut, our gut needs variety, the more variety that you have, the better for the microbiome of your gut, the better for the microbiome of your uterus. As soon as our brain gets involved and it starts saying, oh, but I could just create a menu that I eat every single Monday, I eat this every Tuesday, I eat this every Wednesday I eat this and you start limiting or honing in on what you're going to eat and you eat the same things again and again, you start losing the biodiversity in your microbiome and that Ah. biodiversity is super important.
0: So what is your greatest hope for women's health?
1: Oh, my greatest hope is for women to be able to have the relationship with our bodies, with ourselves, that is allowing us to be in charge. So like not giving our power over to our doctors or our friends or Dr. Google, whoever, but really like being in tune with ourselves, right? And really like having that connection of hey, when I'm in full alignment with myself, my body tells me what I need. My body's guiding me to what food do I need to eat? What, how many hours of sleep do I need to get? And really being able to use that as our guide on our healing journeys, rather than um, some external power or authority.
0: No, I agree. I mean, when we really, I'm noticing it too. i For a long time, I will say my fertility journey took over my life. And I'm now at a point where I am doing that listening. And I wish I would have done it a long time ago because it's really cool. Like your body, it tells you, it tells you, you just have to listen. Um, So, but thank you so much for your time and for your expertise and taking your experience as, as so many do, they have an experience. Like I've got to make change. And so thanks for committing your time to getting to know, um, women's health even more so you can help those who are struggling and trying to, to build their family. So thank you for your time.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you for tuning in to this discussion on the FemPower Health podcast. You can refer to the show notes for links to information that is referred to in this episode. And if you like this episode and found it timely and valuable, please take a moment to tell a friend or a colleague about FemPower Health. And right after this episode is over, please think of one person who might find this episode helpful and tell them about it. And if your friend is new to podcasting, please show them how to subscribe, social media algorithms.